optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start to shake. Can I answer your personal question? Now we're the same time. What if I get the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, and you can find all of the links and resources from this episode, as well as every other episode, by going to 4 hourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Spell it all out, or you can go to fourhourworkweek.com and just click on podcast. Feedback, if you have feedback, I would love your thoughts, anything at all, who you'd like to see on this show. Ping me on Twitter, at tferris, that's twitter.com forward slash T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Tim Ferriss with two R's and two S's. Good day. This is Tim Ferriss. I'm sitting in a park. It's a beautiful park in San Francisco, and the fall weather is upon us. The leaves are turning color, and the eucalyptus are still standing tall. The foliage has not yet fallen. It's a beautiful day. For those of you who have not listened to the Tim Ferriss Show before, this is where I try to use all of my contacts and research to dissect excellence, to figure out whether it's a billionaire investor, a chess prodigy, an actor, or in this episode's case, an actor and a comedian, how do they do what they do? What are the tools and tactics and tricks that you can use? So we dig very, very deep. But I'll start off with a bit of linguistic trivia, and I will ask apologies 
or rather, not apologies, that'd be a weird way to phrase it, forgiveness from the Turkish speakers. I love the Turkish language. It's a fascinating language, fascinating culture, a real collision of European and Middle Eastern cultures. And I also have found the similarity between Turkish and Japanese very, very interesting. But I'll give you an idea of how I deconstruct languages just by memorizing phrases. You can pick out patterns. So for instance, if you say good day, is translated into English and Turkish, and I get again. I've read this, not not said it a lot, but it's igunlar, igunlar. Okay, good evening is i akşamlar. Okay, i akşamlar, and then the the way you would say child, I believe it's çok çocuk or çokuk, and then you have çokuklar. Okay, so you notice the lar at the end. So to turn child into children, you have the lar at the end. And it turns out that literally good day is good days or good evenings in Turkish. And so you can start to piece it together without a dictionary, without a grammar reference, just by memorizing a handful, even like a hundred words or phrases. Anyway, I'm a nerd. There you have it. But we're going to move on to Brian Callen, who is the guest for this episode. He is a prolific actor who has uh, acted in more shows than I can count, certainly, but includes pretty much all the shows at the, at the top of the rankings. Frasier, uh, NYPD Blue, Entourage, Law & Order, uh, CSI, Sex in the City, King of Queens. It goes on and on and on. He's also a world-class comic who travels the globe performing stand-up comedy for sold-out audiences all over the world. He's also one of the best read people I've ever met. So we're going to dig into all sorts of things, the craft of comedy, how he boosts 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 his own creativity, which sounds like I could stand uh, to gain from. Ideas for improving education, both self-education and institutional education. Uh, many different book recommendations, influences of his. We really dig into a lot of details that I found fascinating. Brian's one of my favorite people to hang out with. So without further ado, here's Brian Callen. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to The Tim Ferriss Show. But we also have 50% of this episode, which is The Brian Callen Show. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. I, I am uh, excited to have you on for many different reasons, uh, not the least of which, as we were discussing before we started recording, uh, you are known as the best body in comedy, if I'm not mistaken. That, that's right. It's, uh, just think of, uh, you guys don't have any videos, just think of uh, if you were to take human skin and stretch it over a cheetah, I think that's probably the best way. That's not me, that's just what my critics. <laughs> the critics, that's, what, that's, that's, yeah, that's the worst they can come up with what my admirers say, but that's just, that's just what the critics say. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm trying to piece together, uh, it's been uh, a number of years now, but how did we first meet? What was the first? Uh, Neil Brennan, who was the creator of The Chappelle Show, mm-hmm. knew I was in the fitness and all that. And he sent me, I believe, a TED Talk you had done about a guy named Tim Ferriss. He said, what do you think of this guy? And I, I watched it and I, and I was very taken with the way you were explaining things and, and how you used your body as a, as a human guinea pig. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I texted him back. I said, well, I know one thing. I'm going to go out and get the book, The Four-Hour Body. And, uh, of course, that sent me – basically, I started with The Four-Hour Body and then I got into The Four-Hour Workweek. And then, of course, I listened to uh, – uh, and, and then I read The Four-Hour Chef. 
Um, so I became sort of this, uh, but the, what I really, some of the concepts that you talked about resonated so deeply with me, uh, 20% of your effort, uh, results in 80% of your results, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, here was this guy who had, who was into all the things I was into fighting and, and deconstructing the learning process. And then I heard you were going to be at this loft in downtown LA, um, at some publicist place talking about your book. So my wife and I went there and I had a brief conversation with you, not long enough. And I think that's how we first met. That's right. Yeah. And then I just, I think we had mutual friends, Joe Rogan and Keith Ferrazzi and various people like that. And, uh, and then I got you on my podcast, I remember. And that's when we started dating. Seriously, that's, I think. when we started dating. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And actually the timing now uh, is making perfect sense to me because I uh, recognized you initially from... Uh, having just seen Warrior, yes. and you were in that movie, and I, I remembered the goldfish scene, among others, the, the <laughs> bag with the goldfish, and I was very impressed with your performance and then delved into a lot of your comedy, went to one of your uh, live shows, which was hilarious, yes. and uh, it really is something that I think everybody should experience, not not just your comedy, ideally, but uh, any if you haven't been to a live stand-up show. It's just, it's so categorically different from dealing with, with audio virtually. I mean, just the interaction with the audience, everything is so yeah, uh, I unique. That show in particular too was a, a, a night where I was really trying a bunch of new stuff. I'm about to shoot my one hour special. So what you saw was really in its infancy. And I remember, I remember having you in the audience. I said, if anybody's going to appreciate the process, I, I was literally trying to work out so many of those bits and uh, I wasn't even sure where a lot of them were going, but it was a really receptive audience. And it was just fun to do that for you. And I think the you were there with the founder of Uber. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Tra yeah, Travis Kalanick was there. Yep. Yeah. And so in a way, you, when you have people there, you want to you do your best stuff and kill it. But it was. It, I just kind of remember myself going, I think Tim will appreciate the sort of the process that is. It'd be fun for you to watch now when I shoot my special because it's all gelled and it's so tight. And of course, now I just want to shoot it and move on to the next process, which is coming up with a whole new hour. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. And I, I do think that that's what's fun about stand-up. It's really interesting when you – comedy seems to be the great equalizer. When you, when you do stand-up in, in so many of the places that I do it, what's really cool nowadays is that so few of the audience are actually traditionally white. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I just came from San Antonio where it was primarily, uh, you know, um, Mexican-American and – and but if you do a stand up in a, in a place like New York City or in San Francisco or in Vancouver, man, it is the United Nations out there. And what's really interesting, I think maybe because of the internet, is regardless of all the cultures and how we all come from different origins and different you know points of view, most people laugh at the same stuff nowadays. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're getting the jokes. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been offered to do this tour in India. And I said, are they going to get my stuff? And, and my friend said, are you kidding? They'll love it. And not only will they love it, they know who you are. <laughs> I was sitting next to a woman on the plane, and she kept looking at me. I said, oh, boy, here goes. And she was from India, from Mumbai. And she said, I'm so sorry to bother you. but And she had a heavy uh, Indian accent. And she said, are, are, you, are you on the show How I Met Your Mother? And I went, yes, I am. And sometimes I'm on that show. And she said, I watch you all the time. And I watch you in India. And I thought this is just, you know, it's really becoming a global marketplace. It was really wild. 
So, yeah. do, do you find when you're developing your material that, uh, cert- I'm sure you do. This is kind of a silly question, but what aspects are most difficult of developing material? Because I love watching the iterative process, and uh, people have strong opinions about this documentary. But I, I as as an outsider, found it interesting to watch a comedian uh, yeah. with with uh, with Seinfeld and others. Yep. Yeah. Just to see, like you said, how level a playing field it is like it it doesn't matter if you're jerry seinfeld or anyone else if you get up and your stuff isn't funny people are just not going to laugh (laughs) quick it's why there there are three things you can't really fake one is fighting that uh the the second thing is sex and the third thing is comedy (laughs) your publicist is or how famous you are man if you don't bring the money it gets quiet in that room fast (laughs) gotta be funny or you're dead and and it's it's just the way it is man and that's kind of what i love about you know mma and and uh, you know i do this podcast called the fighter and the kid with brendan shaw who's uh, about to fight travis brown next and i you know tr- but brendan's got to go in there and fight the number three fighter in the world he's six foot seven 240 pounds and brendan better bring the heat because no matter how much we want him to win it's him alone in that ring and in a lot of ways when you're on stage it's the same thing but to answer your question you know the, the process, you know, I, I don't think about being funny and I certainly don't think about being universal. I, I think the way to write stand up, if you want longevity in this business, at least for me, is to start by asking yourself personal questions. And what I write from is this. I'll ask myself some very personal questions. I ask myself what I'm afraid of, what I'm ashamed of, who I'm pretending to be, who I really am, where I am versus where I thought I'd be. Those are the kinds of things that resonate with people. Uh, I have children. I like to talk about how great they are. And I also like to talk about how freaking boring it is to be a parent sometimes. <laughs> or, or, you know, I like to talk about the fact that if my dick had a mouth, it would be saying things like monogamies for pussies, you know, whatever it is. Those are the kinds of things people resonate with, especially when they're married. You know, uh, my wife may not like to hear that, but those are the things. And, and so it really is. That stage is the last bastion of free speech. It's really the place you can really be honest. And my, my feeling is that when you write from that perspective, the comedy finds its way through. And how, how much of a pass do you have to develop your onstage uh, presence? Or I, I hesitate to use the word personality because I feel like there, there are comedians – and stand-up uh, comics who have very different personalities on and off the stage. I feel like you're pretty much what you see is what you get. I mean, I feel like uh, yeah. obviously the the volume is turned up, the intensity is turned up, but uh, you're very much the same guy in a lot of ways on and off the stage, which I think is a good thing. Uh, I I think that's the authenticity. I, I certainly think when you start out, you you are um, you're you're putting on a performance and a character, and you're just you know it's a whirlwind. But I think as you do it, the person that you really are versus the person that is on stage begins to mesh. Uh, and, and there becomes almost no difference at all, hopefully, as you continue to do it. And uh, can, can you start off, as I think a lot of writers do, for instance, a lot of actors, uh, timid and then develop a very brutally honest way of doing comedy or is that something you kind of have to start with to get away with it and the reason i ask is that 
I feel like comedy, as you as you put it, is one of the certainly in the U.S. at least one of the last places where we can talk about the touchiest of subjects. Right? You yeah. can you can talk about uh, adultery, fantasies of adultery, race, which is I think a big one. You can talk about sex and sexism, and you you can say what everyone is thinking without having your career destroyed necessarily. Right? I I do. I think that we you know it's it's. Um we live in a world where people are terrified to talk about how they really feel. I mean, my God, look at the corporate world. Look at, look at how um, structured you have to be. Uh, but I think that's, that's changing. I think that, um, I, I don't know if it's the internet or whatnot, but I, I do think that you, the long-term approach for any company and, and, and I, I believe that's for your brand as a, as a performer. I think your long-term approach should always be authenticity. Try to be as honest as you can. Um, we'll forgive you if it's coming from an honest and compassionate place. You can talk about stereotypes. You can talk about things that are uncomfortable. Um, as long as you have, hopefully, a solution or... Um, or as long as it's, I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's, um, it's just, boy, do I feel sometimes like we're so stifled. You know, I think we're, it's, it's very, uh, people are very hesitant to really talk about what, what, what is really going on. It, oh, it, I, I mean, I, I think our resources many times are misallocated. For example, on my podcast, I had a woman who was talking about how I have to spend more money on education and, my co-host on the show, Hunter Motz, who you know, who wrote a book called The Straight A Conspiracy, mm -hmm. uh, had studied the learning process and said, look, the biggest enemy is the fact that a lot of students or kids in this country just don't believe that they are capable of learning. Uh, we have these misguided beliefs. I don't have the math gene. I don't have an ear for languages. This kind of shit that's, that's, that's fed to us. Um, well... In fact, maybe what we need is a shift in how we look at learning. We need a shift in how we look at ourselves. We may not need money at all. We may just need um, to get people to take a different point of view on how one can learn and how capable we are. Some cultures, it could be argued, some races, it could be argued, have been um, – in, I don't know what the word is, but they, it, it, you can make the argument that there are large swaths of our population that don't believe they are even as they are even capable of learning the way um, their white colleagues are, for example. That's stuff that needs to be talked about. That doesn't need money. That needs dialogue. There are bad ideas out there. And the way you beat a bad idea is with a good idea. No, I and agree. And I think if you if, if if that's if I think if that's at the heart of what you're saying as a stand-up comic on stage, or as a politician, we forgive you. We'll see it. We'll feel it. Um, maybe it's idealistic. I don't know. No, I, I think that uh, I think it's better to be slightly too idealistic than too jaded or cynical, right? Because idealism can at least spur you to action whereas cynicism it is exactly the opposite it uh, it leads you to do nothing right so i mean I, I don't remember who originally said this but uh there's a quote to the effect of you know the person who says everything is going to be all right and the person who says nothing can be done are both bad because in both cases you do nothing well and, but in both cases it gets the way of critical thinking 
right? Yeah. So if you're, if you're completely optimistic, you're not being critical. You're not, you're not being, yeah, you're, you, you've got to be, you t- it gets in the way of sober thinking, both, both ends of that spectrum. And I wanted to just add a comment uh, related to a point you made, uh, echoing Hunter, that uh, the, the issue is, is first and foremost a, a challenging of belief sets in the United States, at least, just limiting it to the United States. And, and I have to just mention for people who are interested in this, uh, you should check out an organization called QuestBridge. It's just questbridge.org. And I'm an advisor to this nonprofit. What they do, I'll, I'll illustrate by example, which I just think is so, so fucking elegant and, and creative. What they've realized is that the getting low income, let's just say students who are high performing, right? Who, who are getting straight A's, who are in the top 10% on the SATs into good schools or into college at all is not a funding problem. There is tons of money at all of these top schools uh, for giving these kids full rides. The problem is a recruiting problem. That's where the dislocation exists because these kids have no family members, no teachers, no guidance counselors who are, who will ever tell them uh, or convince them to apply to a you know Princeton, a Yale, or whatever. And so what Questbridge will do uh, among many other things, is for instance, imagine that you're, uh, whether it's uh, you know, a Native American on a reservation, uh, a poor black kid in the Bronx, or a poor white kid in Appalachia. It's, it's not race or color-based, it's, it's, it's needs-based and merit-based. You get a letter in the mail, or you see an advertisement uh, that is offering you the chance to get a free iPad. All right, you fill out this application because you want a free iPad. And unbeknownst to you, QuestBridge has made that application standardized as an application form to 35 of the top universities in the country. A few weeks later, you then get a letter from, say, Princeton offering you a free ride for four years. And so they're, they're, they're focusing on fixing that recruiting problem. And I think the number is something like half of the low-income kids at the top 35 universities in the country have been fed into the system and fully funded by QuestBridge. What this means is if you're willing, uh, if you want to work philanthropically, I'm sorry, I got to get on my soapbox for this just because I'm so passionate about education and I recognize the opportunities I've had. Uh, that means that you don't need to spend a quarter of a million dollars to put a kid through college at, at a top school, which is what a lot of people perceive. They're like, oh my God, I have to make millions and millions of dollars before I can make a difference. In fact, if you were to take, say, you know, 50 grand at, to help support these types of prizes, the iPads and so on, you could put 50 kids potentially through four years at the best schools in the country uh, by, by solving the right problem, which is not a funding problem. It is a recruiting problem and changing those belief systems. So I totally agree with you. Amazing. And but to piggyback on that, there's a, there's a guy who I just had on my podcast, Mark DeRizowitz, who wrote a book called Excellent Sheep. He was a Yale professor and took a look at the, the essentially what was wrong with higher education elite, these elite institutions, primarily, you know, places like Amherst and, and, and Yale and Harvard. Um, and one of the things he said is that we're breeding excellent sheep. You've got 31 flavors of vanilla. These kids are so in, so obsessed with essentially, uh, achievement for its own sake, not fulfillment or meaning, but rather achievement for its own sake that they, so they can get into a great, uh, you know, become rich doctors or lawyers or in, in, uh, you know, consultants or investment bankers. 
Um, and even that becomes an extension of what they've been doing their whole life, which was, hey, I want to please my boss, jump through these loopholes and be an elite person. Um, and it's, a, it's an interesting book. But um, uh, what, one of the things he talked about was that these these elite institutions are there's a feeder system of about 100 high schools in this country, about 100 high schools. Uh, and that's it that 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 provides students to these universities. So something like Questbridge is desperately needed um, so that we create can create an equality of opportunity. That's always what it is, right? No, exactly. And it's it's when you look at some of the recruiting efforts that are perhaps less than ideal, uh, what they tend to do is rec- try to recruit, say, uh, l- low income but high performing students from within a certain radius of the school itself. And that generally means if the vast majority of these top schools are, say, on the East and West Coast, you're just not recruiting kids from the vast majority of the country, even though they're there. And I think that if you want uh, not just a diversity of color, which I think, quite frankly, can be really... Uh, it can be a very confusing and misguided conversation for people. But if you're looking for a diversity of socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, and so on, you really need to get out, more, yeah, you know, more, outside of a handful of zip codes. Yeah, more of a representation of what the real world is, for God's sake. Right, exactly. Um, so to, uh, to totally shift gears, because I am uh, fascinated and hugely intimidated by comedy how do you what does your creative process look like so to get to for instance you're about to do a one-hour special uh your highly refined well-oiled machine biceps mm-hmm. of steel delta right. deltoids like a vidalia onion with with cheetah skin on it i've seen your tattoos and uh but where does that start right so when you finish this mm-hmm. and you're like oh my god even though it's going to, to, to tear part of my soul asunder, I need to put together new material. Yeah. What, where do you start? What, is, what does that process look like? Well, I, I find that you know I do better when I'm moving. So I've written all my stand-up, walking my dog or hiking in the Santa Monica Mountains. Um, and even more than that, I've learned that comedy is a mindset. You know, uh, I think Francis Ford Coppola said, great screenplays are written on the hoods of cars and standing in line at the DMV, or something like that. <laughs> and he's right. Uh, y- you write things a lot of times when you're, you're doing something else. Um, you'll get an idea. You'll get an idea. Um, my idea, one of the ideas I had is, boy, you know, if you turn my life into a movie, I don't think, I, I wouldn't recommend going. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, <laughs> It was kind of a bummer. I thought I thought I was going to be living this action-packed lifestyle, but boy, do I spend a lot of time in traffic and sleeping. Uh, so it's not. It, I don't think that my life would make a very exciting movie. I certainly am not the hero I thought I'd be. I think, in fact, instead of being the gunslinger, I'm sort of the the merchant who boards up his windows when when they come to fight. I never. I'm appalled at that. I, I wrestled and I like to box and I I fancy myself kind of the opposite. But you know, let's look at my real life. That is. That is very fertile soil. And so what I'll do is I just keep coming back to that theme. I keep thinking about that. I keep thinking about how I, what my expectations of myself were when I was younger. Um, who did I really want to be? Uh, and who am I really? Uh, th- th- that's kind of thing. And by the way, why do I box for 
uh, four days of the week. Why do I spar with 21-year-olds and get hit in the face? It's not good for my brain. It doesn't help my pocketbook. It's ridiculous. What's going on here, man? What, do, I, do I really think I'm going to get in a fight? If I punch somebody in the face, I better have a good lawyer. Yet I really practice hard and I try to sit down on my punches and I think about it and I shadow box. It's a little ridiculous at 47 years old. It just is. And, and, and I'm pissed off that I haven't been able to roll more. I mean, you know, just in case I got to put somebody in a, in a triangle. Are you kidding me? <laughs> kidding me. It's just ridiculous. Uh, I drive a Passat. <laughs> you know, uh, but, but where does this come from? What's going on, man? What, what is happening? Well, I had a father who was a giant. Uh, I mean, a giant. Um, I take after the Sicilian side, my mother's side. She comes from a long line of peasants and petty criminals. So, you know, I'm built to blend in with a crowd. I can pick your pocket. You can never describe me. Who's the, he was white, brown hair, medium, you know, whatever. <laughs> right? So, so these, are, these are where th – that's kind of what you start to think about who you really are. Talk, think for a second about how you behave. And then, and then start thinking about why. How did you start? How did you get here, for Christ's sake? Who are you? If you watched yourself from afar, if you met yourself, what, how would, what would you tell, what would you say to yourself? What would you tell you? Would you say, hey, you got to change this, this, and that? Or would you say, you know what? You're perfect. Leave yourself alone. I doubt you'd say you're perfect. Leave yourself alone. So th 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 it really becomes a process of introspection. And when you're working with these questions, What's the the container, the schedule for that? So, for instance, you have uh, the podcasts. You yeah. have uh, your sort of scheduling on the road career of performing. You have your TV work. You've got your film work. You've got many different projects that you need to schedule for. When when do you typically develop material? I mean, is it in all the in-between slots or do you actually schedule, say, two hours of walking four, so, so four times a week? That's a very good question because the, the, I, I think it's very important to um, – because we all get very busy, right? So yesterday I'm, I'm shooting the Goldbergs, this, this fun show on ABC, and my day has been – I mean long days, 12-hour days. I'm driving and I have a 6.15 call tomorrow morning and I'll be there all day. Um, you, 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 so what that means is that fi uh, writing is a mindset. Writing is not something you schedule. Writing comedy must be a mindset. What I mean by that is that I took all the fencing, any of the sacred space around quote unquote work time or writing. I took it away. I don't believe some people have to do that. You know, Gabriel Marque uh, Garcia Marquez, the great uh, writer who mm -hmm. died recently, who wrote Th A Thousand Years of Solitude and Love in a Time of Cholera and things, um, he had four hours a day he would write no matter what. Hemingway did the same thing. Uh, Flannery O'Connor said something wonderful. She said, I sit at my typewriter every, every morning at 530 in the morning, not to write, but just in case something happens. <laughs> I, it's an act of faith. I had, I, she's got to show up in case. And, and Nick Cave was just on NPR talking about the same thing. He said, I find writing is, you know, this idea, well, you're a rock star, it just comes. No, it's, a, it's, it's labor. It's hard labor. Yes, yes. Somerset Maugham said, uh, the muse hits me at 8 o'clock every morning. In other words, he sits down and, and if the muse shows, it shows either way I write. So there is, there is, um, there is 
a place if you're a creative person or any kind of person and you want to produce something out of nothing. I think you do need to, I guess, sequester time. But but you uh, don't do that. I don't do that because life gets too busy. And when you're an actor and you got podcasts, things are way too unpredictable. And when, of course, you have to box, uh, it's, you know, listen, you <laughs> when, got you're, when you're losing half of your ideas due to brain damage, it makes it harder. That's right. So what I do is I just say, uh, when I'm driving in traffic, I'm going to start writing. When I'm in the shower, I'm going to start writing. How are you capturing these ideas? I, I, I try not to capture them. That's, oh. that's what I do. I just, I just happen. Do, 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 so you're looking at your computer or whatever as you're talking to me. Just, take, just turn your head and look somewhere else. That's literally how I look at writing. I go, oh, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm going to turn over here and just start thinking. I don't put anything on it, nothing on it. And that, that's, that's something you can practice and get very good at. Now, at some point, though, you have to, I would assume, uh, record this, develop it, start looking at possible ways of delivery and so on. Is, is there a point at which you write any of this stuff down or do you just try to hold it in your head and then jump on stage and there is freestyle a, it? I do write it down, but again, I'm performing it a lot as well. Um, and the reason I write it down is it's very similar to writing songs, writing music. So when you write music, and I talked to a couple people, I talked to Fiona Apple about this, I talked to Harry Connick Jr. about this, and I talked to some other some other musicians, um, and all of them said, and they've seen me do stand up, and and I think it was, I think both Harry and Fiona said, you know, you do very similar, you do what I do, uh, you know, stand up feels very, comedy feels very much like music. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, when you're writing a song, rhythm, tempo, um, uh, melody. That it's all it, it it it's all very very important. You're always kind of working out like where to place emphasis, um, where not to place emphasis, how many words are in the song, and comedy is exactly the same thing. When you write a bit, finding how many words go into that joke, finding how many words I should say go into the surprise. Because comedy is really surprise, isn't it? When when you're, I got you going one down one lane, then I say something, and you go, "Oh, I didn't see that coming," and you start laughing. Right. It's kind of what it is. Uh, there is a rhythm. There is a perfect number of words, and I believe there's a perfect amount of emphasis and de-emphasis, if that's a word, uh, to that sentence. Uh, and and that's kind of the process of finding exactly what that whole rhythm is. It's very much like music it really is if um, it, if you had to chill out, if you let's see here um no this is very interesting so i love i love watching comedy and listening to comedy i'm not a uh, a well-versed connoisseur i haven't studied comedy theory if there is such a thing <laughs> like music theory i don't know uh but um i've at least observed that they're they're stylistically very uh many successful comics who have dramatically different types of delivery, right? So you have, uh, when I watch your performance, I agree. There's a, there's a, a certain musicality to it. Then you might see, uh, let's just say a Stephen Wright or a Mitch Hedberg, which the, from a delivery standpoint, sometimes seems as dry as sort of a cyborg without any personality, but it's, it's, it's hilarious. Or, or a lot of it I find to be very, very funny. Who are a few comics do you say comics or comedians, by the way? I guess maybe they're, they're, they're distinct. I say comics. Okay. Uh, which comics out there, living or dead, are very different from your own 
uh, style of uh, stand-up that you really admire? Well, you know, I mean, the people I admire, I, I, I don't know how different, but certainly I think George Carlin and uh, George Carlin was, again, not as interested in being funny. Being funny is something that you do and, you know, there are a lot of tricks to being funny. It's a little bit like being a musician where you write pop songs with tricks and hooks, you know, um, with phrases that are catchy and beats that are catchy. And then then you listen to Pink Floyd or you listen to Led Zeppelin or you listen to, you know, um, whoever they might be. And, and, and the, it's just a different feel, man. There's a reason Zeppelin is still kind of marvel that and still listen to pink floyd the same thing where you listen to the wall and you go man this music's kind of timeless Mm -hmm. i think that carlin was really busy trying to say something you know it's one thing to be funny it's another thing to be thematic and to be getting the audience to think a little bit yeah, profound uh, in a way. Yeah, I think Pryor did that. I think Carlin did that. And, I, and again, I'm not, that's why I, I would say those people are very different than I am. I'm certainly trying to do that, but that's very different comedy. I think my next hour is going to be a lot more in that direction. But those guys were um, not afraid to make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I think it was also a time when people believed they could make a difference with their, with their expression. We live in cynical times. I don't think a lot of people feel that they're making a difference at all, uh, with the exception of people like yourself. It's one of the reasons I like talking to you, reading books. Um, you know, the, 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 we have to fight that, you know. So, but, but as far as to answer your question, I'm going around, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going around and around here. But Sebastian Maniscalco is hilarious. How do you spell his last name? Sebastian Maniscalco. I, I'm not sure. Maniscalco. We, I, I can look it up. He's so funny. You just go under Sebastian Comedian. He goes by one name usually. He's amazing. Um, and then the, Dove Davidoff, of course, who's a yeah. dear friend of mine. Dove Davidoff's great. Brett Ernst is great. Uh, Tom Segura is great. Uh, you know, Joe Rogan is, is uh, somebody I perform with a lot and a dear friend. And Rogan is just, you know, Rogan is just about telling the truth. Rogan is, again, another comic who's less worried about being funny, though he's very funny, and way more interested in getting into your head <laughs> why well, he's got a cult following it's crazy oh yeah the following's the following's incredible yeah do you do you remember the first and i apologize if my terminology is off to is, is off but the first bit or the first uh the first yeah. comedy that you performed that yeah. really got an exceptional response from an audience do you remember that I do. I do. Could you, I, t- could you tell me a bit about it and why, why you think it worked and how it came about? I, um, I, the first thing I wrote was, and I didn't know if it would work and God, you know, I don't know. I, I thought to myself, what I, I was looking, I saw a special on penguins <laughs> and I said, gee whiz, man, you're, that's a, that's a legless flightless bird in the middle of the South pole. What in the world did you have to do in your past life to be reborn that shitty a bird? You know, I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you way rather be an eagle and soar? Uh, or would you rather be those, those basically those feather sausages? <laughs> I mean, that sucks. What do you do if a polar bear comes at you? Or whatever. You spend all your time running away from leopard seals. And I just wrote this thing about who, what you had to do and who you had to be. 
and and I run away from a polar bear and how I'm cold all the time and I look like everybody else. Anyway, I was amazed because I was so terrified it wasn't going to be funny, but it worked. It worked. It was amazing. Were there any any particular? You mentioned hooks and tricks, and I, I don't view those terms in a negative way. Uh, but um, w- were there any particular hooks or tricks in that bit that 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 helped it to work? I don't know. I, I never really. Um, I mean, I look back on my old standup and I cringe. I mean, I cringe. I can't even watch it. But I don't think. I don't think I was ever. I think I was at least sincere. I, I, I mean, I, at least I, I don't think I was ever looking for hooks or, or tricks. I was just writing what I thought was funny. I mean, that's my my young people ask me advice on standup, and I always say, "Look, man. First of all, I'll see you in ten years." And second of all, uh, you know, write only what you think is funny and write every day uh, and try to perform as much as you can. And if you can't, perform in front of the mirror. That's how you become a comic. Have you performed much in front of the mirror? All the time. Really? What does that that look like? I mean, uh... I affected my Chris Walken as a pigeon in front of a mirror. (laughs) Not out of these things, you know, but what I do. I'm literally in front of the mirror going, cool. Cool. I'm a small bird, tiny, big chest, hanging around water fountains all day, bread on my mind. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) should be arrested for even doing that. But but this is the kind of thing you do as a comic. You know, you're 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 always working it out, man. You must be a complete. You must appear to be a complete lunatic in the car when you're stuck in traffic, because I would imagine, in my head at least, that you're doing that kind of stuff nonstop. Well. Look, I was working on a bit. My father has become my fan now because he's seen my stand up and and uh, he also features pretty prominently in the next uh, next hour. And uh, he uh, to his credit, it was great because my mother and my sister and I think my wife were yelling at me about uh, what to buy at the grocery store. And then they were asking me some terrible question that I didn't care about about. I don't know. Do you want to go to Menchie's with the kids and uh, something. I, I don't know. And I wasn't paying attention. And my sister goes, as usual, Brian's here, but he's not really here. And in fact, I was, I was trying to work on a bit. And so I was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Menchie's. Yeah. Okay. Supermarket. Like I give a shit about that stuff. I'm trying to, I'm trying to work out what an ostrich does. I don't know what I was doing. Some, some, I can never tell them that that's more important than me running like an ostrich. I, in fact, I think I was working out this bit where I'm in a tower with no pants on and a woman's over my shoulder and she's like, oh my God, your body feels like warm moving wood. And I don't know what I was like going through this. this thing. I'm, I'm mowing my, her captors down with a machine gun. I got bandoleros. My hair's wet. It's in my eyes. I'm writing this ridiculous thing. I think there's a horse rearing in the background. It's it's not something I can really and this is literally I'm, I know it's going to be a great bit but I can't tell them that and my father my father was so great my father goes he's not here because he doesn't want to he's not interested in your grocery list the guy makes his living off his imagination he's obviously coming up with funny stuff that the country that the world is going to laugh at leave him alone the shopping and it was just great that was a comfortable circle. Thank you. I'm getting paid for what I got in trouble for my whole life. My father used to pull his hair out when he'd get my report card because, in fact, I was fantasizing about being a professional skier or slash tennis player or anybody I was not. 
uh, and guess what? It pays the bills now. So, <laughs> so, so this uh, is not a perfect segue, but I just have a million questions I want to ask you. Uh, you are very well read uh, and very curious uh, in my experience with you. I mean, you've you've read an incredible number of books and really have sort of a, a, a very sharp spider sense for exploring new ideas and subjects you know nothing about. If you did very poorly in school, uh, and I'm not saying these are mutually exclusive, but how did you develop that curiosity and uh, appetite for reading? Because it's it's not always that you find those two go hand in hand. Well, I was always curious, and I, I grew up all over the world until I was 14. I lived in seven different countries, right? So Lebanon and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Greece and India and the Philippines. So I, I was um, I was always I was exposed to so many different cultures. My father was a huge reader, as as was my mother, and they were both pretty educated. Um, but I think that uh, I always had a great deal of trouble until I was a sophomore in college with what you would call concentration. Uh, the idea that you've got to sit down and furrow your brow and concentrate. I didn't know what that meant. Nobody had explained the art of learning to me. Um, the one thing I was very into, I went to college to wrestle, hurt my back, and then I saw these guys kicking and punching, uh, these Taekwondo guys, but they were fighting full contact, and I went, I want to do that. So that began my journey into you know Taekwondo, and I started uh, fighting and and um, I, uh, my teacher was teaching me how to jab the bag, sort of a boxing jab. And I said, I have trouble concentrating. I'm getting C's or something. And he said, he was Korean. And he said, um, hit that bag again. And I hit the bag. And he goes, did you concentrate on that? I said, no. And he goes, same mindset. Reading's the same way. Just let it come into your body. Stop trying to, stop trying to force it in. Just let it come in. That began the journey of sort of, uh, learning by learning in a passive way, I suppose. Uh, it, it, it turned the process on its ear. He, I started to, I, I started to, I guess, um, use the, the mental model I used for Taekwondo and I applied it to my academics. Um, but I think it also came from perspective. I think that I, 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 the turning point was always the fact that I, I realized there were huge deficits in my learning. I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the Greeks. I wanted to know where I came from. I wanted to know who I owed thanks to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Um, what was, what was the Bible? Why did the Bible have such authority for thou, a thousand years or, you know, even thousands of years? Why, why? Um, what was the what was the contribution of the Hebrews, the Jews? I mean, the Old Testament and their laws. What was Roman law about? These were the things that I, I always knew that I should know about these things. I knew that they were people who had done all the thinking for me. I knew that it was a, probably a good idea to immerse myself in the best that had been thought and said, um, because I was I was just aware of how. And I think, look, it's, it's exactly like why you, uh, uh, you should do sports. Sports teach you how tough you're not. Mm -hmm. uh, they also teach you how tough you are. You need both. You, you need what's called perspective. And um, maybe that's kind of what, what I was uh, inundated with before I, I began that journey. When, um, when, when did you start pursuing comedy seriously? At what age? You know... 
as I think about it, I was moved to so many different locations. I, I didn't live anywhere for more than really a two years. Think about this until I was 30. I mean, I, I remember when I bought my first house, I think I was 32 and it was in Venice. And it was the first time I'd ever put anything on a wall. And I was a real nomad. Well, what that meant was I was always moved and put into a whole different circumstance. Usually I was, I was taken to a, a new continent. I'd be in a school for two years in Greece or in Lebanon. And my dad would come home and say, guess what? We got transferred to Saudi Arabia. And I was like, I don't know what Saudi Arabia is, but I have a dog and this sucks. And I, don't, I miss all my friends. Well, sorry, get on a plane. We're leaving. And I, I would be thrown into a new set of circumstances. Well, there are two ways you get guys to like you. One is sports. I was a pretty good athlete. Not a great athlete, but pretty good. And the other is get them to laugh at you. And those are the two things I got good at. Uh, I didn't want to be the last guy picked on the team. And by the way, you'll have fun with me on your team because I will make you laugh the whole fucking time. And that's really where my, my training as a stand-up comic um, started. And, you know, it, it, my life isn't much different. I get up on stage in different cities all over the, you know, now in Canada as well. And probably in India pretty soon. I don't know them, but they're all looking at me and they need me to make them laugh for an hour. Nothing new. Nothing new here, man. I'm just more honed. It's just a, it's just a little more polished than it used to be. Uh, there what, it is. What was, your first, what was your first paid gig for comedy? Oh, boy. Um, I, I think my first real paid gig was in London, my buddy uh, had started an online bank and flew me to London to do stand up in a tent. And uh, oh, I was I was uh, I I don't think I've ever performed to that that kind of deafening silence. <laughs> it was it was horrifying. Dollar <laughs> check or something, and that was fine. But oh, I mean, it was horrifying people didn't really look at me afterward here was this american trying to do bad jokes so uh uh you know you got to have those experiences what made it so bad <laughs> in retrospect the mic didn't work that well and my jokes just didn't seem to want to fly brits have a subtle sensibility these were look you you gotta if you go to britain as an american comic you better be good and experienced uh, I wasn't either of those two. And it got quiet quick, but I, went, I just forged through. I forged through. I was basically on fire. Maybe the most uncomfortable I've ever been in my life. Uh, and, and, and by the way, the one compliment I got wasn't one. She, a woman said uh, she was beautiful. I think I was trying to pick her up. That didn't work. And she looked at me and said, you know, you're really, um, I don't mean to sound bad, but you're really like, you're very American. I mean, you're very loud and very big. Has anyone ever told you that? <laughs> no, they haven't. But obviously this isn't going anywhere. So I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the first, what was the, the first uh, gig that comes to mind where you thought to yourself, holy shit, that fucking worked. I can be, I can be really good at this. I mean, what's when you came off kind of glowing and really feeling like it worked? What was that? What what was uh, the what's the first experience that came that comes to mind that, that fits was, that description? That was a place. I think it was the West Side Theater in New York City, and it was down in the Village. 
And uh, I just, I had this crowd and um, I hit one. I hit one. It was the first time where things started to gel and I'd been working all summer on it. And I did, uh, I'd just been working all summer and it was a packed crowd. And I got up and I did about 20 minutes, which was an eternity back then for me. And uh, they just kept laughing harder and harder and harder. And when I got off stage, uh, some of them stood up and my girlfriend at the time was there. And boy, did I, I just, I went, oh my God, oh my God. So if I just sit and work all the time alone in a room, this is what happens. And that was the end of it, man. That was, I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe, I see, I, I still couldn't believe I was able to do stand up comedy. The great surprise of my life still is the fact that I make money doing this. And, and by the way, you forget how you came up with the ideas. You even forget how you structured them. You just know that they, they become part of you after a while. Uh, you know, a heartbreak is letting go of a lot of your great bits. You can't do them anymore because you've already cut them. And, you know, it's not like music. You just got to keep inventing. Yeah, it. People don't want to hear the, the greats. They don't want to hear you rehash all of your own material. <laughs> no, because it's a magic trick. And once they know what's coming, it ain't going to be the same. Music is different. The Rolling Stones have been singing Start Me Up for the past 30 fucking years. Well, I don't got it so easy. I got to come up with Start Me Up every, every time I cut a new uh, one hour. So. What were the ingredients, do you think, that uh, – I'll try to keep my two-part questions to a minimum, but what were the ingredients that went into that first uh, – it sounds like a home run in New York. And then the second piece is how many, how many times had you rehearsed parts of that performance before that night? You know, probably my whole life. I mean, I think – I think the ingredients, it was, it was, you know, my subconscious and my conscious and the years I had been, you know, the things I'd thrown out there and I just somehow was able to kind of cast a net and then sieve through all the shit. And I just kind of, it's just a process of whittling down who you really are. And I guess whittling down uh, what makes you laugh? Um, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. It, 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 I don't know the answer. It's a surprise. It was just a huge surprise, a wonderful surprise. Dig it. No, I dig it. Uh, what, what book or books had the biggest, I'm just thinking to your, your school experience. And after that, what, what books have had the largest impact on your life, whether that's your twenties, thirties, forties, you know, look, I mean, I went through, I would go through my, my phases. I, I remember reading, you know, Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead by, by Ayn Rand. Uh, and that's good fodder for a young man. It sets these bold, stark characters. You could even call them Christ figures. And you think to yourself, I want to be that. And of course, I read Nietzsche, uh, you know, about Nietzsche. Uh, you know, that, this is the genealogy of morals, etc. I mean, this is bold, stark stuff for a young man where, where the truths and truisms are really cut and dry in a lot of ways. And, and it's, just, it's just like kind of the equivalent of, I guess, you know, intellectual red meat. But then I got into Joseph Campbell and uh, the power of myth and hero of a thousand faces and these kinds of things. And Joseph Campbell was the, the first person to really open my eyes to maybe that sort of compassionate side of, of – of life or of thought 
Um, I, I just loved how he was a biblical scholar, he was an Eastern philosophical scholar, and he would often compare and contrast the two. And that's what I really resonated with, I guess. So Campbell, Campbell was the guy who really kind of put it all together for me. And, and, and not in a way I could really put my finger on, but certainly in a way where I, I kind of, he gave this wonderful, it, it made you just glad to be alive, how vast this world is and how, how similar and how different we are. Um, maybe that's kind of the first guy I remember really blowing my mind. But then, you know, there are books like Josh Waitzkin's book, The, the Art of Learning, I Great love, book. yeah, I wish there were some, some of those books I wish I had, I had read when I was way younger. By the way, I, I love the four hour body. I love what you did with that. I love the four hour work week. I love the philosophy. I like the, I like the journey you took and how you, you broke it down. The, those are the kinds of things I wish I had read when I was much younger. It would have made my schooling a lot easier. That's for damn sure. Um, so my God, the books, so many books, so many, so many authors. I love Somerset Maugham. I went through all those, all those, I mean, uh, you know, uh, listen, listen, I mean, uh, the symposium, uh, Plato's dialogues. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Those guys, those guys, uh, it's, it's just, it's amazing to look at some of the, the ancients and think about the persistence of their work. Forget it. Seneca and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle when you read them, when you read these men who were writing this stuff 3,500 years ago, whatever it was, uh, 2,500 years ago, you, you are profoundly aware of the fact that there is a responsibility to being a human being. There are questions you must wrestle with on your own as a human being. And technology and the creature comforts and antibiotics and x-rays and plenty to eat those things ultimately probably aren't going to help you. They're going to make you a lot more comfortable and maybe let you think uh, longer. And God bless and thank God we have them. But there is a responsibility to being a human being, to being an ethical human being, um, and to being a whole and complete human being that that can be that nobody can really take take help you with. You've got to kind of you got to go down that that rabbit hole yourself. No, definitely. And the like you said, the, the material possessions and success are not going to answer those questions for you. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a really good book that I've been exploring recently. It's about Seneca and it's called Dying Every Day, Seneca at the Court of Nero. It was just published in the last year. Wow. Um, yeah, that, that sounds great. But I've been, I've been really enjoying it. Uh, let me ask if I could shift gears a little bit, a couple of, uh, rapid fire questions. Uh, the first is, what's your what's your drink of choice at a bar? You walk into a bar, what do you order? Uh, usually, a pilsner, a cold pilsner, preferably something like Peroni or Moretti. I like the rice beers in Japan. Uh, that's what I like. But I'm a wine drinker. I like I like my red wine, and I like my red wine to have some age on it. And uh, it's harder to find in a bar. What type of red wine do you like? I like the old world wines. I like I like primarily French wines. There are some great California wines, of course, and great Italian wines. But uh, you know, I'll, I, I, there's nothing like a French Bordeaux or a French Burgundy with some age on it. Nothing like it. Uh, who are some of your? Who's your favorite person or favorite people to follow on Twitter? Oh, by the way, I also like to drink raw goat milk. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, 
after a workout. Um, my favorite people to follow on Twitter. I don't have anybody. I, I don't really follow. Uh, I don't follow a lot of people on Twitter at all. That's that's what people laugh at me about. Um, I think uh, taking Hayek seriously is one of them. Uh, Friedrich Hayek wrote uh, *The Road to Serfdom*, who is a great economist. I like. I like. Uh, I follow them. And that's about it. And Tim Ferriss, of course. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Uh, favorite movies or documentaries? Well, I just read. I just watched *Fed Up*. Um, which is a very new documentary, which I recommend to everybody about the food industry. And uh, I think the food industry, <clears throat> Mars and Coca-Cola and Nestle and Kraft, sorry, but I think that their behavior and how they target children with their unhealthy foods, uh, with their sugar and sodium, I think they are going to be exposed. And I think that we're going to look at their, what they're doing uh, in the school lunch programs, etc. I think we're going we're gonna to compare them very much to how the uh, tobacco industry was behaving back in the day when they were denying that their product caused cancer. Um, there is no question that the, that, that the enemy in our foods is sugar and processed foods. Um, and I think that's what's causing type 2 diabetes in children as young as 8 years old. Shame on them. Shame on them. Uh, shame on them for saying that their soft drinks, like Coca-Cola, is doesn't contribute to obesity. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with one Coke a day necessarily. I don't drink it, uh, and I and I'm I'm a free market guy, um, but uh, I don't think they're behaving ethically, and I don't believe they're be, the, the way they've hijacked the food and nutrition board, the way they've stacked the deck with their own scientists. Um, shame on those scientists, and shame on the food companies. So uh, that's a great documentary. Sorry to get on my soapbox. But I think a huge problem, uh, and I think we'd solve a lot of our health care issues if people in this country learned how to eat properly. Um, the enemy is not fat, as you know, Tim. It's probably sugar. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so Fed Up was a great documentary. Um, I'd have to think. I mean, there's so many good documentaries, man. Uh, I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. No, Fed Up, Fed Up is a good recommendation. Uh, I, uh, I agree uh, wholeheartedly with a lot of the co-opted uh, science, which uh, people can read a book called Bad Science, which is by a, a doctor great. named Ben, ben Goldacre. It's great. Great, great book. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get an idea of how uh, the studies can be uh, tortured to, to say whatever companies want them to say. And uh, Bad Pharma. He also wrote a book called Bad Pharma I read, which was also very good. Yeah, very smart guy. And uh, if you're looking for a counterpoint, there's actually a very interesting organization that I'm involved with called NUSI, uh, N-U-S-I dot org, which is uh, independently funded uh, for studies specific to nutrition for some of these unanswered or at least not conclusively answered questions, uh, which is which is pretty awesome. It's, right. it's, it's been nicknamed the Manhattan Project for Nutrition, which is pretty cool. Uh, let's see. Uh what's the first face that comes to mind when you think punchable <laughs> oh jesus um well after i saw that up probably anybody who's who's anybody who's responsible for for getting their their unhealthy products and for getting uh congress to say that french fries and pizza counts as a vegetable <laughs> in our school lunch programs. I'd like to fucking line those guys up and sit down in my punch. I'm talking about a right and I can hit. I'll show you on a mitt sometime. I'd like to sit down on my punch and just, just break a couple jaws. Those assholes. Sorry. 
that's what comes to mind. And I'm again, hey, I ain't some I'm not some left wing guy who believes in a lot of government interference. I believe in the free market. They're not living in a free market, those people. Uh, yeah. So just just to clarify for for folks out there and me probably as well. So sitting down on your punch means really kind of dropping down and and torquing your hip into some nice follow through. Right, grinding those guys. Yeah, grounding that, that back foot and that front foot on the balls of your foot and just go, just turn that body and keep that, keep that, keep everything loose. That just think of your, your fist is kind of a stone and your arms are rubber band and just sit down, boom, and punch. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. I let, my left hook is pretty nasty too. So I don't know what I'd rather do. Maybe just, maybe left hook followed with an uppercut, something like that. We'll, we'll go into it. <laughs> I'll see if I can set that up for us. Uh, I would enjoy that as well. I'll film it. Uh, what book do you most often give as a gift? Or books? by the way, I want to just let me back up because I got to say one more thing. I read a book called Fiasco. You know the the architects of the Iraq War. How's that going for us, by the way? Who told us that it would happen very quickly? I mean, Dick Cheney was just at the American Enterprise Institute saying that the president must understand that we are in a war and we have to fight this war for as long as it takes. Hey, Dick. Um, okay, thanks. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, you told us that we'd be re- welcome as liberators. So did you, Paul Wolfowitz and, and Richard Pearl and Douglas Feith and Michael Vadim and all you neocons. Thank you, guys. Uh, you guys said we should go into Iraq, and I kind of listened to you. I mean, I guess he had weapons of mass destruction. Apparently, this was going to be a very quick thing and an orderly thing. Um, uh, Paul Bremer, who didn't, none of these people knew anything about the history of Iraq or their, and now I'd like to hear, can you guys at least say, Hey, maybe we were wrong. Maybe we screwed up a little bit. I mean, ISIS, I don't know that ISIS would have happened. I mean, Iraq doesn't seem to be doing that well. And it's 13 years later or something, or it's 11 years. I'm not sure. We will see. I went in in 2003. So I'd like to line those guys up as well. If you could get those guys in a line, I'd like to punch them in the face. I don't want to kill anybody. I just want to hit them and feel them, just feel their jaw break with my, 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 two, my two front knuckles. It'd be a lot of fun. I think um, what I'll do, uh, since, uh, since I've got, uh, I've got some, some ideas now, is I'll, uh, I'll do a Kickstarter campaign, and sure. I will pay them all speaking fees. Uh, I will bring in the heads of all of these... Um, Sort of sugar laden product corporations, and then the politicians. And what I what I what I think yeah. I can I think I can solve your boxing problem. So I'm going to take I'm going to alternate uh, sort of fake scientist, politician, uh, corporate head, politician. Uh, all the politicians will be on one knee, so y- so you can straight right and then low body hook to the Good. head Good. of the politicians. Then you can just work your way down the line. Because all those architects, all the uh, the people that created the intellectual uh, scaffolding and, and 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 you know argument for the Iraq War, none of them have done a day in the military. And I would even go so far as to say they've never done a sport in their life. Dick Cheney, I guarantee, has never done a sport, and he sure as hell has never taken a punch to the face or punched anybody in the face. So I'd like to see how he reacts to what real pain is about. Fuck you, Dick Cheney. Anyway, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I like it. I like it. You're getting fired up. It's good. It's good. I'm a libertarian. I believe in like, you know, the free markets. I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not a I'm not a I don't work for the Democratic Party. Keep going. Go. <laughs> uh, what uh what what on an unrelated note, what book or books are you most likely to give as a gift? Uh, uh you're gonna think I'm plugging you, but I, I I probably have recommended The Art of Learning and the Four Hour Body. Um, I'm, I'm not kidding more than any other book. I just think, I just think it's fantastic. And for young people, I recommend the four hour work week. I just love, 
I just love the possibility and the optimism in those books. And I love that you've kind of lived it and, and, and what you do. So I actually start with those books a lot of the time. So, you know, uh, I, 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 it sounds like I'm shamelessly plugging you, but I am a fan. So no, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. I, uh, and you know, I have to say also the, the optimism, uh, you know, it's, it's really standing on the shoulders of giants and I've had a lot of positive influences in my life, whether virtual by books by Seneca and people like that, or through interactions with mentors and teachers. And I just feel like there's such, as you mentioned, an overabundance of cynicism, which leads to uh, an, sort of an inactive apathy. You know, I can't do anything. I can't make a difference. Therefore, I will do nothing. Um, that's really, I feel, reached a sort of a level of epidemic in the u.s in particular and i'm not i'm not quite sure why that is i, I agree uh, i agree with you tim and I, I think i don't know the reason either but i would imagine it's because in many ways these problems are rather insidious i think that they're they're it, it hasn't come to a head i don't think that we really it's a little bit like when you're in california and they say we're in a serious drought conserve water yeah 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 I'm still taking my shower every day and I'll probably let the water run when I'm brushing my teeth because, eh, you know, we're not really going to run out of water. But, you know, the, the, the real problems, the real deficits, um, the things that are going to come to a head a lot of times are not, they're not sexy. They don't have, uh, they're not very colorful. They're not that visible unless you know where to look, right? So the root, the roots of the problem. When you start talking to people about campaign finance reform and how money in politics is probably one of the reasons nothing seems to work in this country or one of the one of the main problems with the way our government is run, where Washington is probably less concerned with your problems. It's more of a battleground between two different corporations. I mean, in 2010, the biggest issue was swipe fees, swipe fees with ATMs. That's what the, the war on the floor was, was swipe fees. Uh, how much should banks should be allowed to charge somebody um, when they go to an ATM? Well, that be, that's because that, that was affecting two large corporations' bottom line, not yours and mine. Um, when you start talking to people about campaign finance reform, you start talking to them about those kinds of things, it's, it, their eyes glaze over because it doesn't have immediate relevance to their life right now. And I think that's what we're dealing with, apathy. As long as people have enough to eat and they feel safe, um, you're going to have a tough time. Yeah, it's you know it's tough because uh, as someone who wants to be able to catalyze uh, sort of massive positive action, it's 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 a fine line to walk where you want to inspire people and show them the possibilities. You also want to show them the downsides of taking no action, uh, which is a decision. It's not that you're postponing decisions. If you choose to do nothing, you've made a decision to do nothing, and uh, it's it's a it's a challenge for me sometimes to decide uh, whether I can get a better response by focusing on the positive or by focusing on the consequences of doing nothing, which are negative typically. Um, but uh, let's see, dogs, dogs or cats? Do you have do you have any uh, any pets? I'm a dog guy. What kind of what, do you own any dogs? I I'm, I've always had pit bulls, um, and uh, I, I just love them. I just love that bully face, and I love their spirit. Uh, my, my female dog, my pit bull just died and, uh, I've got kids. They want another dog, but I'm kind of like, Oh yeah, we won't get a dog for a while. When you have kids, you know, that's enough. <laughs> now if, all right. So that pit bull, uh, if you had to, 
If you had to select a uh, a dog off the menu in another country to eat for dinner, what mm. would you what would you choose? That's interesting. Um, well, probably something kind of probably a corgi. I could roast that <laughs> small enough to season and stuff in my oven. I'm sorry, I love corgis. In fact, if I get a dog, it'll probably be a corgi. But damn, do they look delicious! I mean, just, just stick, stick, a, a, stick a little uh, crab apple in the mouth. Yeah, I mean, if a corgi had a beak, we'd eat the fucker. Uh, you know, they had a muzzle, so now all of a sudden it's cute. I guess it's funny how that works. But uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would one hundred percent eat a corgi. I think uh, a chihuahua would probably taste more like quail. Um, not a whole lot of meat on it, but I would eat. Um, yeah, but a corgi. Uh, I'm going hunting with uh, Joe Rogan. Oh, you are. Yeah, and at the, at, at, we're going to Alaska uh, October 1st to the 8th with, with Steve Ranella. You've done this before. Very nice. You're going to caribou hunting? Uh, we're going to go uh, deer hunting, actually. Deer hunting. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, I need to get back outdoors for a few weeks of, of uh, non-electronics time. I really just had such a phenomenal experience with Steve in Alaska when we went uh, to hunt caribou. And I was never a hunter, uh, and I know you're aware of this, but... Um, it's really uh, an eye-opening experience to be taken through the ropes with someone who's very responsible and takes takes what they do uh, as it relates to nature as seriously as Steve does. Yeah, he knows so much about animal behavior and everything else. It's it's incredible. I'm not a big hunter. I I'm not, I don't like camping. I miss my cappuccino, but you know I'll do it. I just again, it's the same reason I box. Getting punched in the face just reminds me of my own mortality, how tough I'm not, and it just keeps me a little harder. And, and I think uh, hunting once a year in a place like Alaska and freezing my ass off for eight days is good for me. Have so. you ever listened to Hardcore History, the podcast? I've not. And I need to get that guy on my podcast. I've had him recommended to me many, many times. You, you, could, you could start with listening to his series called Wrath of the Cons, but it talks about the hardest people imaginable and how they can get soft. And it was just, it was such a perfect. Wow. Uh, sort of metaphor for a lot of what I'm trying to reverse in my own life as it just becomes easier and more seductive to try to take the path of less resistance with, which, with a lot of this stuff and using age as an excuse or whatever it might be. Um, been thinking a lot about that. Do, do you have any uh, morning or evening rituals that you do consistently? Uh, just patterns. I, I, when I had my dog, one of the things I love to do is I would just walk my dog and that's where I would think and write. Um, but, uh, I actually, believe it or not, I, I, <laughs> I sound so LA. I almost every morning I drink green tea and I do some yoga. Uh, you know, uh, that's just my routine, man. Uh, I just, once you do it, you feel really great. Um, so that, you, that, that's you, probably my, do my you do routine. the, uh, yoga in a class or do you do that by yourself? I do it by myself, usually naked on a wood floor in front of a mirror. And I just marvel at my body to, Just do cobra pose for hours at a time. Sometimes I just stand there and go, wow, thank you, God. Uh, Too much? (laughs) No, never too much. Not such a thing. A combination of, uh, you know, Bikram and Ashtanga, whatever it is. I don't know. (laughs) And and, and pumping iron. It becomes political. My God. Oh, we don't do Bikram. We do Ashtanga flow. Do you? All right. You win, I guess. (laughs) Watching <laughs> for an hour and a half is too long, so I don't do classes. I'll do twenty minutes and I'm done. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind for you? Well, you know, anyone who is original. I think the uh, the name of the game is innovation, 
and uh, originality. Um, so in in my field, you know, I, I as far as actors are concerned, I mean, Daniel Day Lewis does things I don't I don't know how he does what he does. Uh, Christian Bale is the same way. But I think anybody who uh, surprises and shocks me with what they're able to come up with, usually anybody that comes up with uh, something out of nothing. I love the visionaries. Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs, was somebody I would consider very successful. He changed, uh, he changed a lot. So um, people like that, people like that. Mm-hmm. I like journalists, man. I like uh, – I love uh, what's his name Lawrence Wright, who wrote uh, the Looming Tower and Going Clear. Uh, you know, uh, I love Ken Burns, the great documentary maker, who wrote you know who created the, the documentary Jazz and Baseball. And those people that give us perspective, those people that are able to put it all together. The guy who wrote Fiasco, I can't remember his name, but these are the people that really—that's um, what I consider successful. They are really making a difference. They really are. I mean, it takes guts to write the way they do and to come up with a point of view and put it all together and be that fair. Be that fair, man. Um, th- those are the people that I think are incredible. You know. if, if I were to talk to your, your closest friends, uh, colleagues, family, etc., and ask them what you're world class at, what do you think they might say? Oh, you know, probably, uh, uh, probably being very social. Uh, probably making people feel good about themselves. I just like people. I think that's probably humor, humor. I think I, I, I I think I've always made everybody around me laugh a lot. I'm proud of that, but I've always been, um, somebody said something, Dove Davidoff said, you know, at your wedding, one of the things that that I thought was amazing is that you have one guy doesn't have any money and another guy's a hundred million dollars and you've never, you've never made any, you've never had criteria for your friendships or for the people that you have around you. It's just genuinely who you really like. And I, and I'm proud of that. I'm not a, I don't have you don't have to have done anything. You just have to be somebody I think is interesting, generous, kind, and funny. And uh, you're my friend. So, you know, Related to that, uh, as you've gotten older, what has become more important or less important to you? Balance has become more important. Balance. What type of balance? I think, um, I think that's kind of the idea. Fulfillment and meaning and being effective. There is intent in life, but then there is bottom line. There is something called being effective. Changing minds. Changing minds. And having a positive influence, specifically what I mean by that is being um, an inspiration. One of the cool things about being 47 is that I find that I have young people come up to me and say, hey, I find your podcast inspiring, or I find what you're doing inspiring, or you recommended something, I read it, it changed my life. Uh, I like being in a position of service. Those are the important things. Service. And, and all of those things, when you, when you put other things and people first, um, I think it gives you balance. I think that's very important. That's a good answer. Good. I have a book recommendation for you. I'm sure you get a lot of them. But uh, this book is by Primo Levi. It's called – well, it's a combination of two books, actually. Uh, if This is a Man and The Truce. But uh, I think that given that answer, you would – absolutely love this book. It's uh, one of my favorite books. It was recommended to me by David Blaine, who has, I believe, hundreds of copies that he gives out. He's a good friend of mine. I've known David since he was 17. Oh, no kidding. All right. Well, he's then you can ask him all about it. Uh, maybe you can tell me even more. Uh, maybe you have more background than I do. Well, David will tell you 
And, and he said this on the podcast. We did a podcast together. And David said, I was the first guy to get him to start reading. Because uh, I, I, I said to him, he was younger and we were in theater school and he was 17. And I said, uh, he was hungry. This kid was hungry. And I said, surround yourself with people who uh, will make you grow. And the difference between, you know, the people you admire and everybody else are the people that read. And uh, he never forgot that. So, I, I, yeah, it was pretty cool. So I'm proud of that. So, uh, well, well, he, he recommended this book to me, which is a, a, a masterpiece, uh, of a, of a book or a combination of books. If this is a man by Primo Le- Levy and truce, the truce, they're very often combined in one book. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just incredible, meaningful, beautiful prose with a lot of lessons. I mean, hundreds of underlines, uh, really, really impressive stuff. Uh, All over it. so I have two more questions for you. Um, the second to last question is if if you could give your younger self one piece of advice or two, uh, what would it be? Oh boy, buy property in Venice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, oh boy, and uh, and oh boy, you know, um, gosh, it's I thought about that so much. And I don't know if it would have had an effect. I guess focus, work harder. Uh, but I worked pretty hard, man. I just was interested in a lot of stuff. I mean, uh, you know what? I should have wrestled in college. <laughs> I know that's lame, but I don't know, man. I, what, I, would it know, ruined your beautiful actor's ears? Well, that's I believe me. I was always nervous about getting cauliflower ear. So you know, I wrestled long enough and never got it. Then I did enough jujitsu. But yeah, maybe, and uh, or maybe I would have had an injury. I don't know, man. I, gosh, golly, uh, I I don't know. I no, don't know. No problem. No problem. I thought, it, I, I, I thought about that question a great deal, a great deal. And you know, I would would I have. Uh, studied abroad a little longer? Would I have uh, played tennis more? Would I have boxed earlier? I don't know, man. If, I, if, you, if, you, lost. if you removed, if you took you out of the equation, in a sense, and we're giving a college commencement speech, right? So these kids are, I don't know, I'm, 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 too, I'm too far past it, whatever. Somewhere between 18 and 22. Uh, what advice might you give in that commencement? Well, I would say that if you are searching for status and if you are doing things because there's an audience for it, you're probably barking up the wrong tree. I would tell them that I live in a town where people spend uh, 20 years scratching and crawling to get to the top of the wall. And usually they don't like the view. Um, And that's because their value system was misplaced to begin with. Mm. I think that's what I would tell them. I would say, listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. Follow your bliss, as Joseph Campbell, to bring it back around, said. And there is great security in insecurity. We are wired and programmed to do what's safe and what's sensible. I don't think that's the way to go. I think the way to go is to do things. um, I think you do things because they... They are just things you have to do or because it's a calling or because you want to be – you're idealistic enough to think that you can make a difference in the world. I think you should be a dreamer. I think you should try to make the world a better place. I think you should try to slay dragons. I don't care how big the opponent is. Uh, 
we read about and we admire the people that did things that were basically considered to be impossible. And, and that's what makes the world a better place to live. That was a damn fine answer. I can't believe uh, we got to get you on some stages. That, no, that was that was that. Behind that, I wish I had a fan that was blowing my hair. Although I don't have the kind of hair. That... <laughs> no, that was. Uh, I think that is an excellent place to to uh, start to wrap this up and be respectful of your time. Uh, I've, obviously, you know I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, really enjoy our friendship and look forward to many more conversations. Where can people find out more about you? learn what you're up to, check you out. I, I appreciate it, my friend. Uh, I am going to be, um, I'm at, at Brian Callen. Uh, that's my Twitter and my Instagram, B-R-Y-A-N-C-A-L-L-E-N. Uh, um, and uh, I, you, you can go to briancallen.com to find out where I'm performing. I'm always performing. I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in Atlanta in October. Uh, this Sunday, I'll be at the Irvine Improv. Uh, I'm not in, I wish I was in your neck of the woods sooner than later, but I'm not Tim, but I'll let you know as soon as I am. Um, and I will be all over the place, man. Gosh, I'm, 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 I've got such a big sort of a big schedule and I'm, I'm not sure exactly where I'll be, but I know I'll be in Atlanta in in October. Um, but briancallen.com, best way to to find me or tweet at me or email me at briancallen at Gmail. I answer all my emails. So Awesome. Well, I will put all of this into the show notes, guys, including links to everything that you heard about in the conversation. So for those, just go to fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, forward slash podcast. And, and by the Rod- way, The Fighter and the Kid is, is I think, been holding at number one on iTunes in the sports and rec section for eight or nine weeks now. And Tim, you're going to be on that on Monday. So we're excited. I am, and I'm looking forward to it. I can uh, I can pull all the skeletons out of the closet and talk about how much my, my joints have atrophied from too many knee bars when I was a youngin'. It's going to be great. Uh, but uh, to be continued, I'm sure we'll be having more conversations soon. And uh, thanks so much, Brian. Tim Ferriss, you're one of my favorite people. I appreciate your time. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. All right, bud. See you later.